1: Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nakazi Oates, the host of the channel. Today, we're talking to Professor Deborah Willis. She's a celebrated photographer, acclaimed historian of photography, a MacArthur and a Guggenheim Fellow, and university professor and chair of the Department of Photography, and Imogen at the Tisch School of the Arts at New York University. She also is the director of NYU's Center for Black Visual Culture, and we'll be talking about her new book, The Black Civil War Soldier, A Visual History A Conflict and Citizenship. Professor Willis, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation to share my work with you and your audience.
1: Great, I'm so excited for our conversation. So I want to begin with you telling a bit about yourself. So I recognize that you come to photography in several different ways or several different positions. You are a black woman, you're a mother, you're a daughter. And you're also a curator and a historian of photography. And so I wondered, what's your relationship to photography? And I wonder if those p- particular positions influence how you see photography.
2: They all do, but I'm also a photographer.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. um,
2: the, the main um, point for me in terms of my identity in all of the five ways of describing me in terms of how I came to photography. I grew up with a family who loved the image, loved posing, loved sharing stories. They were all storytellers. Um, My father's side of the family um, also loved image-making and my father's cousin had a photographic studio. We grew up in North Philadelphia and my mother's side of the family uh, loved to perform in front of the camera <laughs> and you know they loved to pose. They were singers and dancers and, and loved life. And so I grew up uh, looking at images um, of family members that were preserved um, through family images and family uh, snapshots and the photographic album. My father uh, my, my father was also a policeman in Philadelphia in the 1950s 60s through out the 70s um, and 80s and um, so he was a policeman for a long time image was a was central to him after World War two and my and he photographed a lot when he was in the army with um, another army buddy um, who who lived uh, maybe about two blocks away, who was the North Philadelphia photographer for the black press, uh, Jack Franklin. So my father also had images when he traveled to Paris and to Germany and his experiences. But he also had a, prior to that experience, he, he, after the war, he went to a school that was uh, it's called Berean Institute. And after that experience, he decided to open up a tailor shop. My mom um, had a beauty shop and the two of them also own a grocery store. They were always um, representing the community in different ways. And so growing up in that very busy, um, always working <laughs> household, I was always looking at images, and from style of dress, uh, because my mother didn't sew, my father hemmed our clothes. And, you know, so just imagining that experience with you know a cop who is you know hemming and but sewing buttons on things like that. So I grew up just kind of watching and observing. I was a, a middle child, and um, and I always tease everyone that um, as the middle one, you're always observing.
1: that's great Mm -hmm. I wonder with all of your you know remarkable experiences with photography and image making I wonder do you have a particular philosophy of photography and if so what is it
0: I
2: don't know if it's a philosophy but it's something that I've always felt that um, that photography had was about representation and representing a moment, but also was a way of um, visual communication through advertising, um, through family images, but also represented what the world imagined or could see within um, identities, specifically Black identities. I was interested in the power of image making when I decided to go to art school, and so my philosophy when I when I teaching a class on the black body in the lens, I'm always exploring how representation has been um, explored through uh, and imagined and just realized um, and un- unfortunately accepted or rejected in in many ways. So these are points that I'm constantly thinking about looking at ways to think about, um, desire and what, how cultures are are viewed in, in, in different forms of the photographic moment. Mm-hmm.
1: To that point, when you mentioned that you recognize the power of image making, when you attended art school, I think about, um, any career that one has, um, I don't think we talk publicly or enough about the different moments that we have, um, whether it's insecurity or self-doubt, um, but then also on the flip side, like really great like triumphs and achievements. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wondered if you could give an example, whether it was in art school or beyond, when you had a moment of self-doubt but then pair that with moments of reassurance that this is what you are supposed to do. And the topic that you um, are interested in and want to interrogate is one that is necessary, if not essential.
2: Mm-hmm. There's it's <laughs> a great, wonderful uh, point to consider because there's this um, phrase that I use sometimes and it's, I don't see it as self doubt, but I see it as the little girl from North Philadelphia with bangs, see, you know, standing on a podium, representing, and you know, questioning, "How did you get here?" You know, and and um. So I, I don't know if it's self doubt. It's, it's, it's about discovery in a, in a funny way. Um. I have a friend who um teaches in, um, in psychology in, 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 DC. And I said, I said to him, I said, you know, sometimes I, um, think about that little girl from North Philly with the bangs. And he said, you know, sometimes you need to leave her at home, you know, when, you, <laughs> when you want to move forward on something, cause she is always asking you, how did you get up here? And so, um, so I never thought about it as self doubt, but it's always a sense of wonderment. And um, but I, I I I don't know if I reject the idea of self doubt, but I always think about her, and then and then she just kind of like soothes me, you know, um, through the moment. And sometimes those moments are um, you know through sitting in a classroom of eighteen men. Um, white men, and one from the UAE, and having three women in the class, two black, one white, and uh, teachers (laughs) points out to me that um, I, uh, you know, I'm asking the question, where are the black photographers in in our books and our representation when we talk about images, and basically saying that they didn't exist and having the, the wherewithal to push forward to say, raise my hand to say, wait a minute, there's something missing in this curriculum. There's something missing in the syllabus. Where are they? Because I grew up in a beauty shop that had ebony, jet, tan, <laughs> sepia, every you know range of the black spectrum magazine and look in life. And knew that there were black photographers out there, so that sense of um, questioning was a part of that little girl standing up to say, "Okay, it's you know you you, you have to ask this question." And and so that's where I, I that t- that sense of moment that you are that moment of you say of oh, self doubt or triumph it kind of it kind of flips um, and twists both sides of at, at the same coin, and that happened when, when I was in, in, um, in school. I knew that my, my dad, when I was in high school, um, no one understood that I was interested in the arts. You know, my father wanted me to work, get, you know, of course, a great city job, um, work for a woman who I've never met, but her name was Goldie Watson. And I, I knew she had blonde hair. She was a black woman with a blonde hair, in the nineteen, you know, 70, 60 late sixties and seventies. Um, and and they they had hoped that I would, you know, go to business school. I went to a junior college, Pierce Junior College, and was um, ready to take on that. But across the street was the art school that I wanted to attend, which was the Philadelphia College of Art. Every day I walked past for two years that art school and was determined to put together a portfolio and apply for that school because that's where I, I had my, my desire to, to be there. And that's something that I focused on while I was in school. And I took advantage of the idea of, of um, working as a secretary, an assistant, um, and I worked for a center for uh, community studies. At Temple University, a woman by the name of Linda Clark, who organized um, uh, training programs for Vista volunteers in in West Virginia or in in the Holler in different places in Kentucky, worked with you know fantastic black men who were community organizers and traveled with them on these little small planes to, to places in West Virginia, as we began to develop ways for um, people who lived in the holler, both black and white, um, to prepare them for for work life, um, which could be either community organizing, working in offices and things like that. So that experience that I, I gained From the junior college business school experience, um, I still learn today. I mean, I had that experience. Um, I still use those tools, um, that sense of critical thinking through the experience of community organizing through my work, which is amazing. I never talked about that. Mm. I never really (laughs) talked about that question, and it all gives that that question you just brought up about moment of self-doubt and moment of triumph. That's um, But working with a, a woman who was um, in charge and understood what it meant to um, make a difference in different, in different areas. And, and it opened up doors for me because I knew then I wanted to make images. I made images there. It was a harrowing experience because I was dealing with a lot of racism um, of of being in, in, in Huntington, West Virginia in 1968, um, at 67, and just imagining um, how people were, we were stoned um, telling us to get out the holler. Um, but we were also, I was given bedding that had bed bugs by the people, and I couldn't, didn't understand why I had. Bumps all over my body, and but could see the point, and went to the doctors, and that's what it was, um, because people didn't want us there, and they were, you know, we were tricked into thinking that <laughs> that we were we were um, there for a reason, but um, but it was also a, a lesson for me, and I and I pushed forward and continued my work. Um, I eventually left this center after uh, two years and decided to uh, move to New York and study photography officially at a photography school here um, in New York. While I was in school, I also worked for Neighborhood Youth Corps in Ocean Hill Brownsville in New York and taught photography to the kids in the community there, as well as taught photography at Fashion High School. Institute high school in, um, in Manhattan. And I spent, you know, a year, um, making images, teaching images, met some fantastic students, people in the community. They were really excited about, you know, us being there and, uh, young people there, you know, creating a a space for, for art in, in that community.
1: I think about the early experience when you questioned, um, you know, the curiosity, the right, the rightful curiosity about where are the black photographers? Um, You're, you're asking that question in a room full of white men who don't necessarily understand, you know, your question. But I wonder, um, is that, was that like the nascent um, beginning of how you would Understand your career to question to figure out what who is missing. We're missing um, uh, a segment of the population, or was that also the beginning of you know one of your classic works, the reflections in black, the the history of black photographers? Would you link it back to that moment in that classroom?
2: I'd link it back to that moment in the classroom. I link. I, I continue to and and had a pushback um, from that. But I had um, two women professors, white women professors who, uh, one, I asked if I could just do an independent study um, with her to create uh, a work and look and identify black photographers' names. Um, And I did, and it was accepted the two professors I work with were central in, in guiding me through um, the semester. I had no idea that that would be um, my life's work, because um, one of the the same professor who would show work of Black people that, of course, you know, stoop labor we experience, but we also experience, you know, other parts of our ex- performances and jobs. In, in, in imagery. And I wanted to um, ask also to include images that not only represented, but celebrated black life in different ways. And I, but he's the one who said to me that, um, why am I there? Because why was I there? Because all I was going to do is get pregnant and have a baby." and a good man could have been in this classroom a good you know, so i was taking up a good man's seat and i recall that moment of you know total um you know the heat <laughs> around my neck i could imagine uh, what i probably looked like but just the feel the sense of that his entitlement to say that i was i could he was denying my sense of being a woman, my my bodily experience of being a woman um, that put to shame me to also have a desire if I wanted to have children at a young age, then that it was, it was either have a, get a job or be a photographer or not have children. So basically, um, he was shaming me as a woman in a public space of, of men who all just, Turned around and looked at me like, Yeah, you know, there could have been 19 men in this classroom <laughs> as opposed to 18. <laughs> and, and you took up his space. And, um, and I remember, um, <laughs> and I was, I mean, the power that he had over me at that point where I was silenced. And, and when I graduated, exactly what happened. Um, you know, I got pregnant, um, that year. Um, and, and then in terms of the sense of self-doubt that, that is something that, um, that's the power that people could have. One could have over, uh, someone who could just deny them their sense of space and, and, just the, the sense of character of, of purpose when I wanted to um, become a photographer. So, of course, I didn't want to go to Philadelphia. You know, I was pregnant. I'm like, wait a minute. Once, after three months, I said, what am I doing? How can I let this man stop me from visiting family, being seen pregnant? And so I, I was back and forth with, I had to laugh and, and throw it off and and, and make photographs of my pregnant belly and use that. I've met, since then, I've met women and i made photographs, I I exhibited the photographs and I've met women who told me the same story. Uh, I met husbands who shared with me, I wish my wife was here to listen to you talk about that photograph specifically because my wife, same thing happened to her, um, that male professors And sometimes women professors said the exact same thing um, that, you know, you have to make a choice. I met a woman who two years ago, never forget, she was 80 years old and she said she was told the same thing and she didn't go back to making art. She didn't make art again until she was in her late sixties. And that, and, and, you know, just the fact that this could happen to so many people, women from all walks of life in terms of opportunities that they could have had um, as, as artists. So um, that happened <laughs> and connecting that, I went to grad school, exact same experience um, at Pratt, which was another place I, I always wanted to go to for grad school. Um, and once I graduated from Pratt, back just um, back up for a second, I, after, when, I was, when I started the research of going into the stacks and libraries at Temple and in Philadelphia and at, at, um, at my own, um, the local libraries in Philly, I found black photographers through city directories and looking at the black press where they advertise, I saw images and I collected a name of names of about 300 names just by sitting on the floor in the stacks and having an opportunity to, I, you know, I was not a traditional researcher. So I just didn't know how they, you know, to used the card catalog. So I just just turned the pages. And, and, and as a result, I found unusual names. I found names and I had, I went to the Schomburg Center. Uh, in 1974, I wrote to Gordon Parks and Monita Sleet and photographers who were um, Morgan and Marvin Smith, who were still, they were in their 70s and 80s. I wrote to them. Um, Gordon Parks, the first one, responded and said, you know, Debbie, please come and visit me.
1: <laughs> wow.
2: I'll never forget going to his apartment <laughs> at Union Plaza. Gordon Parks, who world-renowned yes. renowned photographer. <laughs> Travel the world. And he's calling me Debbie.
1: Wow!
2: <laughs> and and having that opportunity, it um, in the seventies and going to the Schomburg and meeting the librarians there, who said that they helped me find the photographs, but the photographs weren't identified by photographers, so I had to go through numbers of photographs. and And the last year I was at Pratt. I had the, never walked down a corridor, this corridor on the, the west campus ever, but something guided me to that corridor, which had a post up there for a position as a photographic specialist at the New York Public Library Schomburg Center. And I put, that's my job. So I applied for it, applied for two jobs, one for teaching at Bucks County Community College, which was idyllic. You um, know, if I wanted to be a photographer, and it was eleven thousand dollars, and the the um, job at Schomburg was ten eight, <laughs> and I um, applied for both, got both of them. You know, offered the job for both of them, and then I of course took the Schomburg position, and a, and a man by the name of Richard Newman, who worked for Garland Publishing at the time, I call him. Uh, my publishing angel, he he called me up, didn't know me and said, how would you like to do a book on black photographers? So I, I said, uh, oh, I said, I have an undergraduate paper, undergraduate language <laughs> and on this topic. I can't believe you're calling me. And he said, send it to me. Um, you know, we didn't have computers then. We had you know, onion skin, carbon copy paper. <laughs> and. Um, I sent it to him, and he read it and said, "This is a book. He, we, we're going to publish this." And um, that had three hundred names, and I found all of the photographs that I could find at the Library of Congress, um, Schomburg, and National Archives, I, and of course Marlon Spingorn at um, at Howard University. So I, you know, I was new to research, I'm, you know, a, a new mother graduating and all of those things happen. And that began the research for black photographers, 1840 to 1940, which is the basics, basic, um, the core for reflections in black, a history of black photographers.
1: Wow. That is incredible. Incredible. And I just think about what if, um, you know, you did not, Ask the question right if i wonder if you did not have the encouragement from professors or at least the one professor who said you know i think there's some value in that Um, but then also you have these professional experiences um, one encounter research um, the way that you've found it right it may not have been traditional or the conventional ways of doing research but you found 300 names um Mm -hmm. and then you um you know landed at the schomburg and then you came across the the publisher so all of those i mean just fantastic moments that led up to this seminal work just remarkable I also wonder uh, when you talk about the encounters of your um race and womanness, right and how um that was coupled with misogyny throughout all of your experiences um and how many women supported and say i went through the same thing i think about another seminal work of yours which is posing beauty um but thinking about it aesthetically um You know, it's more than a decade um, old at this point, Um, but it's a classic work of yours in which you visualized a history of African-American beauty. Um, In it, you provide a framework that I think is just so great. Um, And it composed of three um, elements, Uh, constructing the pose, which makes me think about, you know, family, when you Mm -hmm. spoke about um, how um, they love the image and love posing. Um, The second one is the body and the image. And then the last one is modeling beauty and um, beauty contest. How did you come up with that conceptualization?
2: Hmm. You know, um, let's see. I met, I was in Schomburg in the 80s. In the late 80s, I met a, a young woman, um, photographer by the name of Carla Williams through her professor who called me up, who who was a white male professor who called me up and said, I have a a black woman who's photographing her bottom and I don't know how to critique it. I don't know what to say about it. And I would like for you to, to meet her. And can you, can you just kind of give me some guidance or can you talk to her? And so I met Carla and, you know, we talked on the phone and we laughed about her professor reaching out to me um, because he didn't do it for um, the white women who were doing self-portraits. He did it for to the black women who were doing self-portraits. And and so we talked about body and image a lot. And we decided to do a book together called The Black Female Body in Photography, um, 18, um 42 to then the present with Temple University Press. And we were looking at images from Africa, from the Caribbean, from the States, but then looking at the the noble images of, of women, the images that were seen of Black women in the world's fairs where they were dressed to exoticize or to um, have images that represented um, some expressive imagination of a tourist photographer. And um, the book was just an amazing project and sold out in, in no time and, and we didn't reprint it. And I was going through, um, decided later um, when I left the Schaumburg to go, I was offered the position at the then it was called the National African-American Museum Project, It was to explore the possibility if there if there was a nation call or a national call for collections to create an African-American museum. Um, I worked with Claudine Brown and the two of us traveled um, throughout the States and places in Europe and, and Africa Um, to identify collections and through that experience, I found images that were just beautiful images of black people that were in their family collections, images that when we talk about black people in the 19th century, beauty is not a word that's part of the description. You know, we we always, you know, yes, resilience, you know, hardworking, laborer, but beauty was never in the description within, even within African-American writings. But with female and women writers, we could find that construction. Um, And then the unfortunate aspect of it, you know, I had got cancer, um, had breast cancer, and... I um was you know pretty down and didn't know if I had a future and and I watched people respond to me with a bald head and even in the hospital with other cancer patients people just kind of looked at me and said can she just move to the other side of the room and not be in our part where we're getting our chemo treatment and, and so the nurses always acquiesced and would say, would you mind moving into this room here? And because you don't have a scarf on or hat on, blah blah blah. <clears throat> and so it, it surprised me, and I thought even in death, facing death, beauty is something that was that needed to be discussed and talked about. And so I connected my work, my research from um, all of the work from Reflections in Black. From going to family collections, and to my experience with cancer, to think about how do we talk about beauty, and you know, I grew up with um, modeling schools in North Philadelphia and debutantes. You know, my sister was you know a debutante at sixteen, and and beauty. You know, so my mother was there doing hair for all of these young girls and, and the experience of that. And, and so I wanted to um, do a book about beauty and look at that question and thinking about what Toni Morrison says is that beauty is, is just, just is, you know, you know, why do we question it? And so I wanted to explore that I thought about Ida B. Wells where people, looked at her, said that, you know, that she's beautiful, but she needs to stop working as an activist, you know? So, you know, you had the choices to make with, if you were beautiful, don't use these um, um, frameworks to um, fight about, fight against um, and fight for freedom or um, lynching um, bills and things like that. So all of that was part of how do we think about beauty is political. Um, and that's where it all kind of came together in in this swirl of cancer, uh, the experience of family photographs. But then, when we think about the Black Arts Movement of of that time period, I everyone I knew had that poster of of, of um, Susan Taylor with her hoop earrings and her bald head. It, on their walls, and it was just one of the highlights of, of no, notions of black beauty. And I contacted the photographer who was living in Jamaica, but had no idea that he was um, his life was in peril, that he was dying, and he allowed me to um, use the photograph, and you know, gave me a price and 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 allowed me to use the photograph. And so that's why um, that image is on the cover. And then using Eve Arnold's image of Malcolm X on the back cover was another central way of looking at male beauty, because I wanted to also consider how do we think about fashion, um, the clove body, the constructed images of, of Black men, um, because they look beautiful, <laughs> you know, and, and and Malcolm always um, was um, not only represented the, the image of beauty, but also the image of masculinity, black masculinity at that time period. And Susan, and, um, the photographer, um, and having the, the photographs rather of Susan and Malcolm as iconic figures on, on the cover of posing beauty was, was to me, was really important.
0: This episode is brought to you by Saks.com at Saks.com. It's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stot, or go full nineties throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
1: Absolutely. So, just not only the content is outstanding, but as you remark, the the um, cover and the back image are just as iconic as the um, the actual book that you produced. So, it's fantastic, and I really appreciative of you telling us um how that came to be i want to um segue into um the black civil war and kind of put this in the context of the noted works that you have um discussed so aesthetically um the black civil war soldier um is kind of different than some of the classic works that um you have produced like posing beauty and, um, um, reflections in black, as well as, um, black, a celebration of a culture, which all three I possess. Um, Mm -hmm. the the black, uh, civil war soldier, um, is slender than the books that I just mentioned. Um, but then also the content, the composition, um, is paired um, with photogra- uh, photos, as well as um, a sustained narrative, um, as well as snippets of um, letters, which we will get to in a second. So talk to me about this, um, the aesthetics, but more importantly, tell me about The Black Civil War Soldier and how you came to this topic and project.
2: Um, this is a book, The Black Civil War Soldier, uh, the photographs. It also started working at the Schomburg Center, looking mm-hmm. at images of Black Civil War soldiers that I never heard about when I was in school. Mm-hmm. Didn't know that there there were photographs of Black Civil War soldiers. We knew World War One Black soldiers. Uh, we knew I knew personally because my great grandfather was in the um, Spanish American War. And he, when we were kids, he would talk about, well, back in 98, you know, he was like 98, <laughs> that was about 98. He was just, he was a fascinating man, but having um, that experience, I never knew that there were images that represented um, black soldiers in the civil, in the civil war. We knew that quote Lincoln freed the um, black people but we Mm -hmm. never knew the story of black people freeing themselves or that experience. And I worked at the Schomburg center. And then when I moved to the Smithsonian looking for collections, I met a number of white collectors who had a treasure trove of photographs of images of, you know, men who were posed in front of backdrops with American flags um with landscape so i began to think about how do we imagine how did how did it happen that these photographs did not circulate and then i found some family members black family members who had photographs but it was didn't not the numbers that that we see today which um i really wanted to purchase when i was at the smithsonian but could not and um because of the price like two and three million dollars at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily the the collectors um were able to get support from Yale, purchased some photographs, the Library of Congress purchased some as well. And so they're now in public collections, but at that time they were not. But my father was an I mean he loved history and we used to go to Gettysburg. Um, he was from Virginia, so we knew um, Fredericksburg. We, you know, He lived in that area of Orange County, so we, I knew Civil War history through my father's interest in um, travel, and he was an avid traveler and, and a tourist, and we visited a lot of places, a lot of sites. We have photographs from, you know, only from the Valley Forge years of of the American (laughs) Revolution to, and so it was just fascinating for me to see these images uh, that weren't, that didn't circulate. Once I had an opportunity to um, think about these images and um, I wrote an essay that was unfortunately was denied the publication because um, one of the editors disagreed with my account of the description of of this experience. So one of the things that I was, and they said, well, if you change this part of the essay, we'll publish it. And I, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. And, you know, I gave a, a fantastic talk about it. People were interested in it. But um, this editor didn't want, didn't, he disagreed with my, um, The as I talked about the war and the experience of these soldiers, but I'm reading the and I found the information that I discovered in um, the oral history, slave narratives from the WPA period. Hmm. I found black newspapers uh, and abolitionist newspapers where they were um, soldiers wrote letters and published them and sent them to as if they're diary accounts of their experiences in South Carolina and sending it to paper newspapers in Boston and Connecticut and New York about their experience in the war. Hmm. So I, it wasn't, it didn't happen. <laughs> you know, the, the, the person decided, nope, we're not publishing it. And, and the institution went along with the editor and, and, and so, of course, I was. That was disappointing for me, but um, you know, it's happened before. With when I wrote about James Vanderzee Der Zee, and mm-hmm. um, a, a director said I was over, I was inflating, over inflating James Vanderzee's contribution to um, the history of photography, and I can't, com- I couldn't. How dare I compare him to some of the early um, photographers of the Pictorialist period? So I've saved all of those um, comments um, that one day I will say that it's disheartening, and, mm. you know, that, that people who control the publishing experience will, will decide that, nope, we're not going to publish this. Mm. I um, gave a talk, I was invited to give a talk at the British, Irish, British, British, Irish American Studies Association in Belfast in, I think about five years ago. And the person who invited me was Celeste Fournier, Fournier, who also worked on the book on Frederick Douglass and the photographs of Frederick Douglass. And I presented the paper there and told um, the people that I was really happy, <laughs> the audience there, that I was really happy to be there and to share my research. And this was an opportunity to explore the story of letter writing because Black people, would, we were told that Black people couldn't read or write. Mm-hmm. Here were evidence of letter writing, um, even if they were scribe, uh, written by a scribe, there were people who were available to tell their story. Mm-hmm. So they asked if I, was in, if I would be interested in publishing my paper in the journal. And so that happened. And and then my colleagues here at NYU Press asked if I would also publish the book, and that's how the book um, um, was published. And it took, you know, it took basically five years from from the beginning of the research, which also explored ways to think about, you know, a collective memory, um, a memory from family, but also the experience of. How, um, you know, the monuments um, are mm. are central in the discussion of monuments are central to our um, our framing. Because I believe, and I, it I might be naive, but that if, if people could actually see these images, that Black people could experience um, the white and Black, all Americans um, could see that. These soldiers were there and mm-hmm. fighting for uh, freedom in front of American flags. They believed in their citizenship, mm-hmm. even though many of them were enslaved at that time. Mm-hmm. But also that they, you know, used the U.S. brass button. Um, they wore it on their their belts and on their lapels. They, you know, had hand painted, hand tinted American flags. So America was part of their framing, even though they worked in collaboration with the photographer, but there was, there was a sense of agency in, in the making and, in creation of these uh, photographs.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as you said that when you were at the Schomburg, um, and you came across during the research of this, of this book, you came across just a, a wealth of, um, photographs of um black civil war soldiers um you note in the book that this is a a moment um and um newsmakers photographers um really are trying to capture and document this and and in a way i would imagine if it was you know the 21st century it would kind of be like a a a documentary in a sense um Mm -hmm. because you wrote Quote, um, and, and you're quoting a journalist here. The Civil War marked the first time the large numbers of reporters, artists, and photographers followed troops into battle. And then someone else wrote, photographers captured the experience of war on the battlefields, at campsites, and in temporary studios where soldiers struck poses before the camera, eager to preserve their memories of the war. And with that, I just have a new framing of what you said that African-American soldiers understand this moment and they want to narrate how they will be remembered um, in history, but then also to their families. Because another part that you mentioned, I think, in the the, the thesis of this project is that um, you are trying to... Um, Get people to understand that black soldiers fought for and they died for their freedom, but also for their families. And I think you actually mentioned that early on, and that reframing um, helps me to think about um, think about um, soldiers in a particular way, in a different way than the way historians and other scholars, as well as artists, have said um, have said it. I don't know if you have something to um, to add on.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I um, I love um, reading, you know, history, and but I also think that history also has a had a place for setting art and setting photography, mm-hmm. and through that text, I I felt it was important to. A number of historians, I mean, they, they're documents and they're, you know, there's not, there's, you don't have a sense to engage with the, the, the sense of memory, um, the personal memory. And I wanted not only the, I wanted to, I guess, experience the, the voices of, of women hmm. um, that we rarely had an opportunity to read about when we we always knew of the white lieutenants and captains and how they guided these uh, black soldiers to battlefields and, you know, from, you know, Crater to Fort Wagner. But they're, they're the stories that that's always told in that one week class that we have of, of the Civil War when I was in school, we didn't have a semester of civil war. We didn't have long histories of it. So that was, that was the same narrative that I, that it, that I experienced in reading the, the way that public education and even when I attended college civil war was not necessarily a part of the language or the history rather when studying it. So When I decided to, um, find ways to incorporate um, new voices or new narratives. I felt it was important to use the journalists, the letters of mothers and women, and also the soldiers themselves who were pretty funny in terms of hilarious when and the way that they wrote about that talking back to the master, you know, I'm, I'm coming back for my wife and children. So you treat them well because I'm coming back. Mm -hmm. So they, they were, they were pretty brave in, in their language. And unfortunately because of um, the black soldiers left the plantations or the, the land and left the women and children on the land, many of the women were brutalized. Children were raped and and mistreated um, and killed because um, black soldiers uh, left, the, um, left the plantation. But what they also left was that their determination that they're going to come back, they're gonna return and they're going to fight. But there was this sense of evidence that never really highlighted for me um, that black people had the sense of bravery you know, um, there was always this this hesitation of pushing the, the sense of bravery and writing about uh, bravery in um, the um, 19th century. Mm. And also black love mm. was never um, talked about for me in, in reading 19th century stories of of you know, horrific experiences. But when when the men and women exchanged letters or when the men wrote back to their masters or their mistresses, they would say, um, you know, I'm coming back. And that's that's an expression Mm. of love, Mm. Um, that their commitment to their families, having the opportunity to have their photographs made with their family members also was a sense of uh, weaving a new way of, realizing um, the importance of family in in, in portrait making of, of black soldiers mm. all of that was um, amazed me <laughs> uh, opened up new new narratives for me and gave me an opportunity to um, to rethink um, this story but also I, I was in Pittsburgh um, some years ago. Given a talk, and there was a a postdoc uh, historian there, and he mentioned to me about the um, using the pension records in the National Archives, Mm. which I never Mm. used, never thought about using, never. (laughs) You know, know, why would I go to pension records? You know, and I thought about, oh yeah, I can look at my great great grandfather, but then I. He introduced me to the Brewsters, where a woman who fought for her um, father's, um, her I mean, her husband's pension um, for a number of years and denied each time she pro- to prove that he was a soldier. She sent his photograph. She described where he was injured and described his injuries and where he lived all of that, but um denied his pension. Mm-hmm. And and at the same time I was reading, uh, it was the 75th anniversary of Gone with the Wind. And you know, I grew up looking at Gone with the Wind with my family, you know, crying and all that stuff, but not really <laughs> knowing what the story was about mm-hmm. and not realizing, well, wait a minute, let me this look at this. So I decided to, while researching this book is to look and teach the class, Gone with the Wind. And I was invited to the mm-hmm. 70th anniversary of gone, of the Gone with the Wind um, conference at UT Austin. And um, gave a talk. I looked at the images, but it was fascinating for me. And reading Hattie McDaniel's um, biography, where her father also um, fought in the Civil War. Mm. And she also fought for his pension for 13 years and Mm. never received it photograph of him where he was injured and in tennessee his experience similar to the brewsters but denied the pension Mm. and and then her experience of feeling that she needed to have that you know that role because it was central to her her own personal history but the um the making of the Gone with the Wind, I noticed quilts that were made um, by black people that Hattie McDaniels also, in terms of wearing earrings and, and lipstick and, you know, different ways of reading Hattie's role um, really helped me um, guide, you know, guided me through this book as well as mm. how do we see women, not as the The person who helped Scarlett, you know, Hara, but the person who really maintained the land, mm-hmm. and, um, reminding me of the you know the musicians in the film. if you ever have to teach it, <laughs> just look at the black musicians who are playing the classical music at the waltz, uh, mm-hmm. the waltz, mm-hmm. which never noticed them before and until I um, until I you know worked on this book. But also just the, those classic moments of, of how do we how do we read that that experience, and so it was important for me to think about black male identity through um, portrait making, but through writing mm-hmm. and and think about women and mothers, you know feisty mothers writing to Abraham Lincoln, but then the discovery of black surgeons. Mm-hmm. How would I know that there are black surgeons? I did not know until um, a researcher, um, a curator at the NIH, um, Jill Newmark, had an exhibition of that included the the Civil War in medicine, and that was another experience for me as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. In the, in in your book, you mentioned that you employed, um, a new method, um, where you coupled unidentified soldiers posing in uniforms with freed bonds women, um, or, um, bond women dressed fashionably, um, and while they're dressed in their, their work garments. So, i just think that that's just a wonderful practice and do you see this as a practice of of black love or how are you thinking about this particular methodology the way that i read it
2: Mm -hmm. i i see it i you know also recognizing um the craft of, of of black women in dress that we are now seeing the dress body um, we've always seen the tattered clothes of black women, but we also think about cotton as the commodity in um, South Carolina during that time and how um, it was distributed to Europe and other places. But seeing that these women who some were making the clothes, some were knitting, um, um the socks, but to, to know that they were all working in collaboration to represent a visual sense, even they understood photography as well. Mm. And it's not like photography was foreign to them because I'm, I'm sure that they were photograph. They saw photographs in, in the homes that they uh, worked in, lived in, but the photographers also, there were, there were days that white photographers opened up doors for black, uh, citizens free and bond to um, to be photographed so when I'm thinking about citizens I'm thinking about the residents of the uh, of the city mm-hmm. the white photographers who in one white photographer in Mississippi described that he was chased out of town because he opened up the studio to blacks at a, the hour before whites could enter so understanding the importance of, of what photographs meant um, was was not. Um, a foreign experience for people who were enslaved, who were opposed, because we know of the Agassiz images of the, um, and the JT Zieli images of the black people who were um, seen as objects. And this is an opportunity with this book. I wanted to explore the dress body.
1: Mm-hmm. You also wrote um, here that, um, In addition to public demand for images of battlefields and newsmakers, photographers profited from the immense market for individual portraits of servicemen. The great demand for portraits was a natural consequence of the departure of hundreds of thousands of young men for the uncertainties of war. Soldiers routinely exchanged portraits with their loved ones before they left for war and then transmitted later images by mail. With the death and unignorable reality, many soldiers sat repeatedly for portraits in order to ensure the longevity of at least their image and their memory. And then I think about, as you talk about the dress body, I think about the work that the uniform is doing for soldiers. So I wonder, and, and not just for the viewer and not just for you as the researcher, but um, other people, African Americans and presumably white people, um, were struck by the uniforms. So could you talk about the uniforms as part of the performance of black uh manhood uh black masculinity or even the politics of black male bravery
2: Mm -hmm. when um as you were describing it i was just thinking about what um what it meant for them Mm -hmm. um that but the um, the other unfortunate aspect of they were of course underpaid Mm -hmm. um they received um $13 Thirteen dollars, and you know, within three three dollars of that was paid for. Uh, paid for the uniform. Mm. So mm. that aspect of of the difficult of understanding that experience was was hard for me to just imagine that. You know, the government is asking them to to um, be a part of the war, but also underpaying. And then there were soldiers who decided they would not take the pay, the lower pay. Hmm. Um, But having the opportunity to wear the uniform um, had a a tremendous effect on the soldiers. And many of them wrote about what it meant to have the um, uniform, the, the hat, the belt, and it really... Had a sense of manhood and bravery within the framing, and then there were the the different styles that were created um, during that time period that were um, were central to men in the South who were part of the the um, I'm trying to remember the, the, the title, but it'll come in a second. <laughs> but the the way that they pose, you, you you could feel. Um, their, their, the importance of, of dress for them, mm. and mm. and what it meant for them, what it communicated to them, in in wearing the uniform, and um, why can't I think of that name? But it'll come in a second. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I was also wondering, um, you as a researcher in presenting um, this visual history, um, I was talking about. This particular book to one of my friends, um, who is a PhD student, um, as well. And, um, he's also uh, a photographer and he said something that began to make me think about, you know, our role, particularly, um, for you as you craft this, this book, um, and his name is Dustin Gavin. And he basically said, um, Something to the effect of, um, the book as, um, like an exhibition or a curatorial space, um, and that you present documents, um, and leave for the reader to make their own interpretation. I wonder as a researcher, as a photographer, as a curator, did you see that, um, um, and did you adopt that practice in constructing this this narrative and this book as a this book as a curatorial space?
2: no but I love the idea um, I want to thank him for that <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> but I love the idea what I had hoped that um, the reader um, would experience is the a sense of discovery mm. um, looking at the images that the the dress, but also the portraits, these, um, individuals are looking beyond the camera lens in sometimes in some spaces where I think that they're sending a message to that there, that there, there, there is, and will be a black future.
0: Hmm.
2: And, and that's what I, every time I looked at the images and, and there were so many images I wanted to include. Um, but I couldn't because I had a limited number of images and 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 no um, outside grant I could not get a grant for this book so when I think about the when black men wore the uniform, it angered um, the 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 slaveholders in the south but it also angered um, men in, Baltimore, who, who actually pulled one of the soldiers off the, um, one of the surgeons off the trolley and beat him because he was wearing uh, the blue, the, the uniform. Hmm. So it angered, you know, mobs and angered others um, and angered individual men because they understood the power of the uniform. Hmm. Hmm. They understood that. But when we, as, as, as your colleague suggests that, how do we um, curate this as, as a, as a framing of looking at, you know, black family, black masculinity, um, black fashion. And it's, it's all part of that, that sense of um, it's all here. Mm. And, and I think that having what I was, what I had hoped to do that the reader would, see and and realize that there is a history that they've been denied mm. about, um, about black people. Mm. Mm. You know the Fleetwood's diary is another you know the handwritten diary where mm. he was talking about food and what what it felt to be cold or wet. Um, but moving forward, um, the sensitivity that, that, that he described, in in the um in his diary and and that these diaries were sold um to both black and and white um soldiers who wanted to write about their experiences Mm
1: -hmm. wow so before we end i want to go back to um the point that you emphasize about family um you know you quote someone that says um there's a large body of African-Americans who um, are willing to um, enlist into the army. By the end of 1863, some 37,000 African-Americans had enlisted in the U- uh, Union Army in 58 segregated regiments known as United States Colored Troops. And at the same time, you mentioned that the casualties of war included women and children, that are left behind. Can you say a little bit more about that?
2: Yes. Um, when um, the soldiers left um, in the South, um, they left um, the children, um, who were also viewed as, as quote, helpless children, um, contraband, um, women who were pregnant, who lost Children um, during um, their flight following um, the Union troops, but most of the families that that's that died that we know of are part of the descriptions that we that I I read and listened to in the WPA oral histories. Um, the memory that. Was I guess part of their loss that they shared had a lot to do with the children mm-hmm. um, and what happened to their children, uh, what happened to their sisters or their brothers, and they they describe them in their in these um, these experiences in the narratives. Uh, There's one woman that I I loved um, and it was the story of a mother who had looked for uh, garland white a mother who had looked for her son for a number of years who was sold into slavery and um, she wrote to um, she when when the uh, union troops I'm sorry I'm trying, I'm trying to remember all of the the many stories that I, I wanted to, to share. Mm-hmm. When, she, when the Union troops entered the city of Richmond, they, um, there was a woman, an older woman, who asked Black Union um, soldiers, Do you know where Garland White, do you know Garland White? And finally, someone pointed the woman, directed the woman to uh, Garland White, who was the chaplain. Of, of the uh, one of the troops, and she asked him a number of questions: from What is your name? What is your mother's name? Um, where were you sold from? What's your you know the different stories, um, experience? And he, she knew that he was in in Georgia, that he moved to Canada, that he lived in Ohio. She asked a number of questions, and then she says at the end. This is your mother, Garland, who has searched for you for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And just to feel and imagine the there were 10 direct questions that she knew the answer to. And when I think about her story that lost her son to someone who sold her um who, who was purchased in, in the Lower South, but there is a network of people who knew his whereabouts and from the entire time. And this is a woman who probably visited the city of uh, Richmond looking every day for mm-hmm. her son. And mm-hmm. And that experience is another, when we think about the loss, not only of the death, but also the aspect of women whose children were sold into, Mm. into slavery. Mm.
1: Mm. Wow. Really remarkable and powerful, just beautiful, just beautiful work that you produce. Um, professor Willis, the black civil war soldier. I want to know before we end, um, are there any projects that you're working on now?
2: it's a it's really fascinating a number of people have said to me that the reflections in black is out of print which i was surprised mm-hmm. um that um and, and asked are you going to reprint that we're going to reprint it i um contacted the publisher to ask the question <laughs> and yesterday they we had a long conversation about it. And so, yes, we're going to reprint Reflections in Black and want to move it forward to the 21st century and to include um, photographers that I've encountered and others have encountered over, um, um, the, for the past 20 years to open up that conversation. I'm also working on a project with the National Gallery of Art um, and, and the Black Arts Movement is, is an exhibition that's going to be in 2023, 24. Mm. And I'm also making my photographs. <laughs> mm. So I'm interested in photographing in um, Philadelphia uh, families and photographing just recently in a show called Staying Power, that's um, at the village Philadelphia, Philly rather, that Monument Lab has organized. So I'm making my photographs and continuing to try to find a, a place to show them and, and excited about when I'm when curators are contacting me and, and the the younger curators who are contacting me and <laughs> saying <laughs> thank you. You know, your work is so important and We'd love to have you in an exhibition and just like you reached out to me, I really I'm indebted to your interest and in your voice and your interest in exploring and addressing my work.
1: Oh, Professor Willis, I'm indebted to you for really honing in and, and keying in on African American artists photographers as well as african-american women they are essential and as you said in the beginning representing not only just a moment but representing a people so i'm just so glad that i have this opportunity and i'm glad that you are still writing that you are still um, um photographing and that you are curating with your upcoming projects it's just Fantastic, and I can't wait to um, get the new edition of Reflections in uh, <laughs> <Yeah,
0: laughs> Black. Yeah, okay, <laughs> <laughs> and
1: then to see the um, the exhibition, the Black Arts Movement. I'm fascinated by that. Part of my dissertation um, uh, focuses on. Uh, the black arts movement. Um, we can talk about that later. Um, Ooh, I'd and, like to
2: know what, what's, what, what's the title of your dissertation?
1: <laughs> oh gosh. I'm, I'm still, I'm still trying to figure it out, but my dissertation focuses on, um, black storytellers and storytellers mm-hmm. who, um, tell folklore and fables and legends. And I'm periodizing it from the 1970s through, um, the 1990s and, um, it's a black storytelling movement. And, um, they actually said the origins, um, is from the black arts movement. Mm. Um, and, and so it's fascinating. I, I spent last summer, um, speaking to, um, a great collection of African-American storytellers, um, that are still, um, working today, um, and began, um, some of them began um, them. Some that began in the 70s are still alive um, today, um, but it's just remarkable, remarkable. So I wanted to talk more about um, your conceptualization of the Black Arts Movement um, okay. through this exhibition at some other time, okay. but this is just fantastic. Professor Willis is the university professor and chair of the Department of Photography and Imogen at the Tisch School of the Arts at New York University. She is also the director of the NYU's Center for Black Visual Culture. And she is the author of the new book, The Black Civil War Soldier A Visual History of Conflict and Citizenship, published by New York University Press. Professor Willis, I want to thank you so much for being on the show and a fantastic conversation.
2: Thank you.